Hey, my name is Sean, and I like learning about how things work and why. By day, I'm a designer and researcher, and I moonlight by interviewing exceptional people here on Promise. Every episode of Promise is an open-ended discussion on the idea of Promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, Promise showcases tomorrow's heroes before they get famous. In this week's episode, I chat with Billy Jeremijenko, co-founder of Aquila. Aquila is building the quote-unquote internet of energy using lasers. If you think that sounds crazy, have a listen and Billy might just change your mind. We chat about energy abundance and scarcity, why what sounds like science fiction is much closer to science fact, how Aquila is leveraging existing tech to build this future, and a vision of humanity amongst the stars. Please enjoy my discussion with Billy Jeremijenko. So today on the show, we have Billy Jeremijenko, one of the co-founders of Aquila. Aquila is probably one of the craziest ideas I've ever heard of. Their whole premise is to transmit energy wirelessly using lasers. Now, I don't profess to be technically capable of understanding or explaining what this is. So, Billy, please, if you would enlighten us what Aquila is about, by all means. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine the internet coming into play, say, a couple decades ago. The internet enabled people to connect any arbitrary device onto a single network using a single protocol. What we're doing is essentially the internet for energy, enabling any sort of devices which are able to generate and receive energy to transmit energy between one another. We do this by using lasers. The idea is to direct them into space because space is a lossless medium and then redirect them around the world using optical relays, essentially just mirrors. So you control the orientation of your mirrors to direct energy to wherever it needs to go in the world. And in this way, we can create a global energy distribution system by using space as a pathway and by making light the wires of the future. Fascinating. That makes it sound simple, but also incredibly difficult. Let's look at the sources of the energy that you're trying to redirect here. I presume that you're trying to capture abundant renewable energy that's in one place and transmit that to a place that doesn't have access to energy. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the issues we're currently facing with energy scarcity worldwide, it's not necessarily a problem of renewable energy scarcity. Like renewables are now cheaper than anything else and more sunlight energy hits the earth in one hour than civilization uses an entire year. It's more a question of like, how do you capture that energy and how you distribute it to the right place at the right quantities at the right time. And that's where we think this concept of the internet of energy will be very helpful in accelerating the transition to a renewable energy system. Okay. And what's your background actually? Can you give us your background and what makes you technically capable of understanding and trying to achieve this? Yeah, yeah. So I'm exceptionally fascinated by physics. I have a background formally in mathematics and data science. So professionally, I've worked in a few startups, mostly in data science and data engineering roles. I got really interested in photonics several years ago because I was incredibly interested in space and understanding how we could create infrastructure to explore the universe. One thing that I found was this idea of sailing to the stars on a rush of laser energy. And that was encapsulated by the Breakthrough Starshot project. So they were going to build this massive 
like 100 gigawatt photon engine. So like a laser array that shoots a bunch of lasers at a light sail and accelerates it to basically nearly the speed of light, enabling us to get to the nearest star systems within very short amounts of times. So like within a human lifetime. And so this was really fascinating. And the one thing that caught my interest reading the Breakthrough Starshot papers was these trends in photonics they were leveraging to make that cost effective. So what they found is that because we've got this massive $600 billion communications industry driving down prices for fiber optics networks, it was becoming very cost effective to transmit very large amounts of power wirelessly using lasers, using essentially fiber optic cables, which were doped with a material that sort of amplifies the light. It's a bit technical, but basically just means that you've got trends enabling us to pump twice as much power through a single laser at half the cost every 1.5 to two years. And I guess extrapolating that forward, one, it showed that you could, in principle, create this 100 gigawatt photon array for like $10 billion. And I guess understanding that, I realized that with the infrastructure we have in the energy system, like 100 gigawatts is essentially enough energy to power basically the entire world. And you could create a laser array outputting that amount of energy for only a few billion dollars. And when you compare that to how much we spend on transmission infrastructure, it's within the trillions. So it seemed that if you could find a way to adapt this technology for energy transmission, we could make a much better, faster and cheaper way to power the entire world. And it would be much more flexible as well because it's wireless. You don't have the fixed infrastructure. It's very adaptive. It can be adapted to whatever situations you need it to. So it just seemed like this was where the future was heading. We just needed to ride that wave. Yeah, awesome. So it sounds like there's the confluence of a whole variety of trends and you've got specialist interest and specialist knowledge in the realm of photonics, but you also have a co-founder, Nelson, who I've been fortunate enough to meet. What's his background and how does he fit into this? Yeah, Nelson is an exceptional engineer. He's the kind of engineer that just builds really cool gadgets just for fun. He's got a background in aerospace, so he was at Rocket Lab for several years doing guidance, navigation, and control. Prior to that, just more general engineering work, mostly focused on full-stack mechatronics engineering. So his superpower is engineering complex networks. So he's able to basically take components and assemble them into these incredible networks, which has been really useful for us as well, developing this technology. Are you able to give an example of what kind of crazy networks he's been able to assemble? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'll give an example from Rocket Lab. While he was there, he built this testing facility for Rocket Lab. And that was essentially a network that simulated a rocket launching into space on the ground. He was able to create this infrastructure that Rocket Lab basically needed to even launch rockets into space because they wanted to make sure that everything was going to work all good before they actually launched the rocket. And yeah, that was his work. He whipped that together in a few months, probably other engineers would have taken a year or more to do that sort of stuff. So he's very good at assembling these networks effectively and fast. Fantastic. Well, we've talked about the confluence of a variety of trends. Sounds like there's a bit of a Moore's law in terms of the particular kinds of technologies that you're looking at. However, you've mentioned to me in the past that you're not actually really using new tech. This is all pretty standard stuff. So what's the balance there between inventing new technologies versus just repurposing existing stuff? Well, I think there's magic in taking things that exist and putting them together. In our case, there's a few components to the network. There's the lasers, 
These are essentially just, you look at semiconductor laser diodes, so similar technology to what you'd find in actual computers, and they're pumping through optical fibers, which are doped with a particular kind of material, basically it just amplifies the light. And then what that enables you to do is create a very powerful beam that's able to travel over very long distances without actually diverging and losing energy, so to speak. So you take that technology and that's what you need to essentially transmit energy over large distances. But you also have to have the component for redirecting that energy where it needs to go. So these are just essentially optical relays, so like mirrors or basically any other optical component that can redirect light and maintain the parameters of the beam, how the beam is shaped and how the beam is moving through space. So the relays, what we intend to do is put them in space, essentially just have mirrors orbiting around the world. You beam energy up to them and they bounce them around. And the final component is the actual photovoltaic. So essentially the same technology that you'd find in solar panels, but adapted to a specific wavelength and intensity. So the challenge here is how do you pump an incredible amount of energy through a relatively small surface area very efficiently? And that's technology that does exist, but it's technology that's, it's difficult to come by and you also have to adapt it quite a bit to repurpose it for this application. So the magic in what we're doing is putting all these components together. Our network will be a marvel of technology. It will combine sophisticated optical relays, precisely redirecting the beam at high efficiencies to wherever it's needed with these incredible photovoltaic technologies that are able to operate at near 100% optical to electrical efficiencies. And this is possible by essentially optimally tuning the material band gap, so the energy required for the electrons to jump in the material and create a current, as well as using advanced liquid cooling. So there's substantial engineering challenges in putting it together. It's not going to be easy, but it's really the only way to, to electrify the world, so it's worth doing. So it's not going to be easy, it sounds like there's multiple series of challenges that you guys are going to have to overcome. How did you and Nelson decide to become the people who are going to fix this problem? Yeah, yeah. So a bit of context about our story. We actually met through the Startman Engineering Fellowship. And at that point, I was pretty well certain that I was going to create a business. And like the concept was, we'll build the foundations for this future where we can shoot lasers at light sails and sail to the stars and create this sort of galactic humanity. So quite big ambitions from the start. And I guess the question was like, how do we create that future? How do we build those foundations? And we spent a long time just trialing different ideas and figuring out how we could, how we could lay the foundations for a future of, of abundance and a humanity among the stars. And essentially it was that insight. It was looking at what it would take to get to that point and understanding that there's a real connection here to the massive problems we're facing right now with uh, with fossil fuels still being ma- making up the majority of our energy diet. And of course, that is currently leading to a lot of issues with war in Ukraine and energy crises in Europe. Understanding those things and understanding that we had this technology here that could potentially fix it if we could just apply it in the right ways, it just made sense to give it a shot. So you guys met during the Startmate Engineering Fellowship. Was that the natural progression then into the start main accelerator program as a result of these discussions that led to this idea yeah um actually there was a few ideas we went through um one was a space data nexus and one was a laser platform in space to deorbit space debris and maybe scaling those two things over time to get to where we wanted to go we also went through this program called blackbird wild futures and wild futures was good from the perspective of taking very ambitious deep tech early stage startups more at the idea stage and trying to 
refine them and get them to the point where they could do something like Startmate. So we went through Wild Futures. We got a lot of incredible mentorship from Claire Birch and Nikki Shabak. And we converged on this idea to take this technology that could be applied to send you know, probes to other star systems and use it to create a global energy distribution system. And after we finished Wild Futures, we had a bit of a demo day for Wild Futures and we ended up doing very well. And then we applied to Startmate and we got in and that was our progression. So it was a very natural progression, I think, from just meeting the engineering fellowship to doing an idea stage accelerator to, uh, to getting into Startmate after that. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations on getting into Startmate, by the way. Thank you. Okay, so let's break down this laser energy transmission system that you've spoken about so far into the various components. Let's go from start to finish of where energy gets generated from to how it might end up for example, powering the electronics behind this conversation that we're having. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's use a specific example. Say you have a solar farm in the middle of Australia. If you wanted to get transmission lines from that solar farm to an Australian city, you'd be looking at thousands of kilometers of transmission lines. If you're using HVDC, which is really the only way to transmit energy over those distances, that's probably going to be a cost of about $1 million per kilometer. So you're looking at costs well within the billions. So it's not really feasible right now to actually connect very remote solar farms to like places that need them just from a cost perspective, but it's also not feasible from a land rights perspective because the actual process of getting the land rights to build those transmission lines itself will take maybe a few decades. So yes, the thought is how do we create a system that takes energy from remote locations where there's abundant energy and distributes it to wherever it's needed. So let's go back to that example, a solar farm in the middle of Australia. What you do is you would attach a laser to that solar farm and the laser would directly take the current coming through that solar farm and use it to pump its laser component. So it would use it to light up the diodes and the diodes would start producing directed light. And that directed light would be fed into a network or a series of optical fibers. Basically when you're talking about distributing a large amount of laser energy, what you have to do is you have to not just have one laser, but you have to have a lot of lasers all feeding into the same beam. And now you've got that beam, which is going up into space and in space, you're operating a network of optical relays. So a network that can take that beam and redirect it across the world. So step-by-step, what would happen is there's a specific relay flying overhead. You shoot the laser at that relay and that, that relay picks up that light and redirects it to either say an Australian city, or if you're trying to distribute energy internationally, it would redirect it to another satellite, which is at a different location. So you're actually leveraging space as a distribution network because space is completely lossless. Like distributing light through space, there's no loss. All you gotta do is make sure the light remains focused in between relays. So then you have this pathway through satellites where you've got up to one satellite and then across to the next satellite, and then you're directing it around the world and say you want to get it back down to Europe, now you're above Europe, and finally at that last satellite, which is just above Europe, you redirect it down to a receiver station that you're operating in that energy market. And the receiver station is basically specialized photovoltaic, so able to take that specific type of light, that specific type of intensity, and convert it into electricity at very high efficiencies. And then that receiver station would convert it into electricity, feed it into the markets, basically just like any other generator, it's an on-demand source of energy, which you can pick up from anywhere in the world and use to power local energy markets. Okay, so that's prompted a variety of questions from me. 
So let's start with the bit where you've generated electricity and you're going to shoot it up to a satellite. Why a satellite? I know you said it's lossless in space, but what's the difference in efficiency between shooting it up to a satellite versus beaming it to another station that's in line of sight? Let's say you're trying to get from central Australia to one of the major cities on the coast. Are you able to create a variety of stations along the way that you can aim in line of sight rather than having to go up into space? And is that more cost efficient or less cost efficient than creating a whole fleet of satellites to achieve that? Yeah, yeah. ultimately the atmosphere is going to take energy out of the beam. And that energy loss over distances is through a variety of factors. Actually, mainly it's due to divergence. So the atmosphere interacts with the beam and causes it to spread out. And that's called atmospheric scintillation. The actual loss due to aerosols in the atmosphere, so basically particles which absorb a bit of energy from the beam, is actually not too high because what essentially happens is the beam goes through the aerosols and evaporates them on a very short time scale. So it's, it's kind of clearing its own transmission pathway. But the reality is with the scintillation effects, it's still going to be spreading out quite significantly over very long distances in the atmosphere. So it's probably better from the perspective of going long distances to be distributed through space. The other thing you could do is have optical fibers. So you could have optical fibers which are having electrical energy converted into light and then distributed through the optical fibers on the ground. And that's definitely an application you can tackle. And there's specific sort of cases where that might be useful. From our perspective in the near term, understanding that our system is going to be less efficient than just using electrical power lines we want to target applications where there's a niche to fit in and in those relatively small scale transmission problems where you can just basically distribute it through the atmosphere there's not as much of a niche because you can just build transmission lines that said there is a niche say if you have electric aircraft flying through interior australia you can literally just beam energy up via laser you can have the same sort of receiving infrastructure that you find on the ground for international energy distribution and then you can charge it while it's flying. So it basically extend the range of aircraft indefinitely. So you could imagine a world in a very short amount of time where all aircraft are electric because electricity is just the cheapest way to operate aircraft. And they're essentially just being charged while they're flying by a network of laser charging stations. So that's an application we'll be targeting in the near term, but we'll also aim to extend that network of laser charging stations to distribute energy through space. Okay, so second question then. If you're going to be using satellites, satellites have different kinds of orbits, as far as I'm aware. You've got ones that circle the Earth in 90 minutes or so, and then you've got long-distance ones which are geostationary. They stay fixed in place according to a coordinate on the planet. Which one do you choose? And is there a difference? Is there an issue with, for example, the former kind of satellite that circles the Earth in about 90 minutes? What if it goes out of line of sight? Does that cause an issue or do you have to beam to a new satellite? Does that change the trajectory of energy? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing you're doing when you're analyzing which satellite types to use is basically looking at it from a fundamental physics perspective and understanding what would be required to operate satellites in each orbit. What I mean by that is when you're talking about fiber lasers outputting basically the highest possible beam quality. So essentially what people call is diffraction limited. There's still a sort of divergence over distance that you're gonna be having to deal with. So diffraction limited beams for laser wavelengths is actually pretty small. Our lasers are operating in the infrared, which means they're invisible light, but they're quite close to the visible spectrum. So like the actual wavelength of the light is very small. 
And when you compare that to something like a radio wave, which is way bigger, the divergence for a small wavelength is way, way smaller. So you're able to effectively transmit energy via these wavelengths over much greater distances without the beam actually diverging. Um, but nevertheless, you do have this fundamental divergence that you just can't get past. And basically what that means is if you're operating at a higher altitude, your mirrors have to be a bit larger to collect all the light because the actual beam is going to diverge more over that sort of distance. And then obviously you're going to have to focus that beam between satellites to keep it from diverging over its base distribution pathway as well. Essentially, the game you're playing is how do you minimize the cost of the network in terms of satellites you have to launch up and how big they are and how much it costs to launch to particular altitudes and how many satellites you need. In the case of a higher orbit, you need fewer satellites. They need to be bigger mirrors. In the case of a lower orbit, you need a lot more satellites to get the same coverage and the mirrors don't have to be as big. It still works out to be more cost effective to use lower orbits to actually solve this problem because it's just very costly to launch massive mirrors into higher orbits and even if you did the rocket bearing sizes are limited so you can only get mirrors up to a certain diameter right now that's like four meters so you probably want to be operating within the 500 to 1000 kilometer range of orbits to make this work and you probably want to have a constellation of maybe a few thousand satellites to get global coverage which is obviously a massive massive capital requirements to get that constellation working but fortunately you can solve this problem iteratively yeah, definitely sounds like a massive problem and actually a larger scale than I originally thought. So that goes nicely onto the next question that I had in terms of sourcing all of these components that you need in order to make this a successful venture. I've been recently reading into the supply chain of semiconductors, and that sounds, first of all, complicated, but also very fragile at the same time. And I'm wondering if sourcing components for lasers and for photovoltaics and anything else that you might need in order to at least make prototypes, let alone the end result of a fleet of satellites up in space, whether or not it's similar in terms of the reliance or over-reliance on certain kinds of providers for certain components. Yeah, absolutely. This is something we've been struggling with, definitely. We have tight timelines, we got to get at least a basic proof of concept of a sort of product by the end of the Submate Accelerator, which is coming up now. And because of that, we've had to be very creative in the way we source components. And I guess it's a challenge that we're probably going to face more as we're trying to get to scale. Hopefully by then, some of the supply chain bottlenecks that have been in effect recently have died down a little. It seems from our perspective that the, the situation is getting better. So Ideally, we don't have a massive problem with that, but the reality is you're still going to be facing lead times within a couple months to even a year. We've been talking with startups who've had lead times on some of the components they're sourcing of a whole year. So you have to be forecasting and planning out a year and ahead because you're just optimizing based on how many components you're getting a year before and how many you'll need at that point in time. Ideally, we won't have lead times that long, but I think expecting lead times on these components of a couple of months is reasonable. So we have to be very precise about how we're managing our supply chain, specifically with semiconductors and the components we need. So obviously there's the semiconductor laser diodes, which are pumping the optical fibers, distributing energy into space or to aircraft or whatever. And then there's the actual optical components on the orbital relays or whatever kind of relays you're using, which are just basically, they're not too bad. You do have them very specialized to a particular wavelength. 
but the actual materials are not unsourceable. And then there's actually your photovoltaic components, which are also an issue. The semiconductor diodes and the photovoltaics, like it's all the same materials. Essentially, if you've got a good supply chain for those materials and you have a highly vertically integrated company, in principle, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. So our ideal case in the future is we've got a highly vertically integrated company that can get these semiconductor components and assemble them into our systems. And that being the lasers, the mirrors and the receivers all in the one place. That would be our ideal sort of future scenario. All right. So you're based... In Australia, and Nelson, your co-founder, is based in New Zealand, and there's reasons for that. We can get into that, but specific to the question that I'm wanting to ask is in terms of being a vertically integrated company, creating your own photovoltaics and any other bits of technology that you need, do you feel like you're able to do that in Australia and in New Zealand? Because to my knowledge, at least, the majority of photovoltaic hardware actually ends up being delivered from China. So do you feel like you're able to confidently be able to produce that here in Australia? I think there's a couple of points to that question. We've been doing development work out of New Zealand and we have research and development sort of facilities in New Zealand. And the reason for that is because we've been able to tap into the aerospace and photonics networks there. Rocket Lab obviously created an amazing amount of aerospace talent in New Zealand, and we've been able to leverage that as well as their research into photonics, which I won't cover in detail, but essentially they have looked into transmitting lasers through the atmosphere. You've also got the photovoltaics expertise here in Australia. So that's mostly concentrated around UNSW, Uni Sydney, And there's also a lot of photonics expertise that's been developed out of Australian National University. And the reason for that is actually related to the Breakthrough Starship project itself, because you've got these phased optical arrays being developed at ANU for use in that Breakthrough Starship project. So there's this talent network essentially, which is concentrated in Australia around the Sydney area, and also in New Zealand around the Auckland area. And we're aiming to tap into all of those networks to create the company at the scale we need to, because ultimately this is a multifaceted company. We have the photovoltaics expertise. We have needs for aerospace expertise and we have needs for photonics expertise as well. Our structure is aiming to maximize our leverage in getting access to that expertise. In terms of us working in different locations, I'm mostly working out of New Zealand right now. I am planning to set up operations in Australia because obviously we're an Australian company and we want to start building those relationships with all the talent we need for moving forward. I think, yeah, hardware companies are difficult to do remotely, but it's becoming very possible now to have a multi-location hardware company due to all the advances in 3D printing and essentially hardware becoming more like software. Okay, so you've actually covered the next question, which I was going to have about your partnerships with universities and space programs. But I'm curious about the first prototypes that you've created. Can you talk us through the first prototypes, what they do, how they function, and in the course of creating that prototype or multiple prototypes, what are the hypotheses that you've proven or disproven so far? Yeah, absolutely. So before going into that, I want to just convey what we're trying to do with our prototyping. Essentially, there's a few proof points we need to tick off. One, you can transmit energy wirelessly via laser. And two, that you can transmit it to a moving target because eventually you want to scale to transmitting energy up to satellites and then beaming it through space. Our hypothesis has been that at every scale, you're essentially creating the same product. So if you're charging a drone, for example, that's like a kind of mini satellite in the sense that it's a similar problem in that you're transmitting energy up to a moving target, 
but it's much closer to the ground, it's moving much slower, and you don't need to transmit as much energy. You can tick off these proof points iteratively. And because there's these massive issues in drones, UAVs, and electric aircraft around battery life, you can actually start servicing customers before you even have an orbiting network or an ability to distribute energy wirelessly over large distances by essentially just using these laser charging stations and applying it directly on the ground, beaming energy up to these moving targets. So what we've done with our prototyping is trying to tick off that first application being drones, being very lightweight, not consuming a lot of power and relatively close to the ground, moving not too quickly, generally speaking. We've been working towards that over the past three months. We've been in operations and we've managed to scale towards a drone charging demo. So what this does is it takes a relatively low powered fiber laser, attaches it to a sort of turret. So the turret moves around and directs the laser to the drone. And in that way, the energy is being transferred from the laser up to the drone. On the drone, you have a receiving station, which is taking that light and converting it into electricity. And our current prototypes isn't actually charging the drone because we're actually only distributing about a watt of power up to the drone. We're going to scale it up to 300 watts in the next little period. But right now, it's all it's doing is basically turning on an LED and proving that there's energy being transmitted from the ground up to the drone. So our next phases is obviously scaling that up to 300 watts, proving that we can keep a drone in the air indefinitely through laser charging. And yeah, going on from there, scaling it further to UAVs, then aircraft, and then starting to prove we can transmit energy up to satellites in space. So let's say you're operating with a drone, right? So is there going to be a part of that set of tests that you do where you've beamed energy up to the drone, you can charge it, but instead of actually just charging the drone, you've got to redirect that energy. Is that going to be part of the test as well? No. So the redirection of energy, actually, we did do a very small scale test on this, essentially just using the laser to prove redirection of energy. Physically speaking, it's pretty solid. All you need to do is have a reflective surface and have it calibrated to redirect energy in the way you need it to. That's something we can do, but it's something we're putting off to satellites in space because there's no real need to do it yet. And also, once you get to satellites in space and once you can control the satellites in space, that's when you actually start having a use for redirecting energy via mirrors. There may be use cases in optical relays on the ground in the near term. We haven't really identified them yet, but our process of discovery in terms of how do we scale from where we are now to a global energy distribution system is still very much in progress. So that might change. Well, you actually gave me an idea of another use case that you might want to experiment with is public transport systems because they're fairly set in how they operate. It's the same route every day. And at least here in Melbourne, you've got trams that run on electricity. You can swap that out, stick a thing on the top, and away we go. But that might be totally out of your scope. I think for those specific applications, you do have infrastructure that's capable of already serving them. And that infrastructure is probably going to be more efficient, at least in the near term, than anything we can do. I think one thing we are being intentional about is creating new applications. Like what wouldn't be possible prior to having a laser energy distribution system that would be possible afterwards? The markets are ready because people have these needs, but they're almost new markets as well because people just will be able to do stuff that wouldn't have been possible before. I like that goal. It's a very um, high aiming goal. All right, so let's talk about the future of Aquila now. You've got your working prototype and you've got a series of iteratively larger and larger tests that you want to conduct. But what is the next thing that you're going to do, the very next step? The next step, from a technical point of view, we're very much just 
focused on scaling our laser power, scaling our receiving power. So that involves basically getting high concentrated photovoltaics. And we're in the process of getting together a 20 watt laser and also a 300 watt laser. So we have two steps, 20 watts, 300 watts. And at each point, we're going to prove that we can transmit that amount of energy to a drone. So once we do that, once we've got those two proof points ticked off in terms of being able to transmit enough energy to a moving target to serve useful applications, that's when we're going to look into fundraising. So obviously being a DTEK startup, we don't have a way to bootstrap. So we have to go to VCs and raise money and get enough capital to get to the next phase, which is actually deploying the solution on the field and starting to generate revenue. All right. Now, at every stage of growth that you're going to raise money from, because you're a deep tech startup, it sounds like you're probably going to have to go through many rounds of raising because of high capital expenditure. So I'm wondering if you're concerned at all about the dilutive effects of that on yours and Nelson's ownership of the company and whether or not that will pose problems in the future. Yeah, it is definitely a concern. I think when you're fundraising and you're ultimately giving away control of your company, there is a lot of possibility that the people you're fundraising from won't necessarily be aligned with your goals, having a vision to create a sustainable and abundant future for humanity, essentially. Now, what we need to be very careful about is ensuring that the venture capitalists we raised from are not just aligned with us from a capital point of view and like trying to get us to the next stage, but also from a mission point of view. So being able to identify the venture capitalists who really connect with our mission and really want to see that come into effect. I think if in the best case you have sort of investor base that's completely aligned with what you want to do. And in that case, the actual effects of giving away equity are not really too much of a concern. The real world is not idealistic. The real world is not like that. Oftentimes people change and people maybe were aligned, but they weren't aligned afterwards. So there's always a concern of what will happen if something does go wrong and we lose control of the company. We've tried to put in a few safeguards for that. So understanding that our ownership is going to dilute away over time. We've tried to make sure that when there's a board deadlock, so when we can't decide, the decision falls to us. So we're the ones who understand where to take the company in the case where there's conflict. And we think that will be helpful from the point of view of maintaining good direction, even if we're giving away a lot of control of the company. I think that from the dilutive point of view, in terms of capital, realistically, it's not really a big deal because every time you raise, your valuation goes up by like 3x anyway. Even though you might go from, I don't know, 40% ownership to 30% ownership, it's still a lot more from a point of view of maximizing like your resources so it's not really a big deal but i am not purely selfish i am doing this because i ultimately believe in the future we're building at the various scales that you're going to need to grow towards as a deep tech startup you're going to have to partner with different kinds of companies if you're starting off with drones you're going to partner with drone manufacturers companies who, who produce photovoltaics at the really small scale and then let's say you step up to aircraft manufacturers let's say like a Boeing or an Airbus, for example, and then the next step beyond that, creating satellites. I don't actually know who manufactures satellites, but you've got to probably strap it onto a Falcon Heavy rocket, for example. And once you get to that end state, hypothetically, will you still maintain the relationships that you've had You know, as you've scaled up? Will you still operate with drones? Will you still operate with aircraft manufacturers or is the goal to just let that fall away and just to be a distributed energy system through satellites? Yeah, so I, our system is very modular to what I was saying before about being able to take a bunch of lasers and put them together into a bigger laser. The point here is that 
with a modular system that you can scale naturally over time, it becomes very easy to actually service all of these applications because all of the applications are essentially the same product just at a different scale. So we don't necessarily see any reason why we would have to move on from every application as we go along. The only thing is like, we'd want to make sure it doesn't distract us. The Envision is very much being able to create this infinitely scalable laser energy distribution system. And if we get distracted, I don't know, charging drones, that's probably not the best. That's the only consideration there, but there's no reason why we can't continue servicing all these applications using the same technology as we scale it. All right, now I'm going to jump into skimming through your white paper, which I'll link in the show notes so everybody can have a look at the thesis behind Aquila. Now, there's a section towards the very end about who you would and who you wouldn't work with. And there's a bit where you talk about, quote unquote, bad actors and not going to work with bad actors who might use this technology for military purposes, for example, destructive purposes. How do you make that value judgment? And what are the safeguards you're going to put in place for yourself? Or let's say if your ownership in the company gets diluted and you're no longer a majority shareholder, hypothetically, how do you put safeguards in place to ensure that that doesn't actually happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With our constitution, we've directly stated that we're doing this for non-military or destructive purposes. What we're trying to do is distribute energy. We're not trying to destroy things. We're not trying to help certain militaries to assert dominance or whatever. We're just trying to create a global energy distribution system to get energy from wherever it's produced to wherever it's needed. In terms of that point about bad actors, what I will note is the technology itself is very specific. So it's only able to work within its bounds. So like you've got a software system essentially, which is controlling the laser and it's only able to do what it was programmed to do. So in order to actually have these bad actors come in and take that over, what they'd have to do is reprogram it. So obviously you have security in place to make sure that they can't reprogram your systems. And in that case, the only thing that could happen is they could contract you to adapt your laser technology to actually destroy stuff. The reality is if people want to use this technology for destructive purposes, they're going to have to go through us and we can basically just veto that. If it does end up being, I'm not a majority shareholder anymore and that the shareholders are aligned with actually using it for militarily destructive purposes. I guess, like you said, I wouldn't really be able to control that. All I can do right now is make sure we set the foundations for having a company, which at least has founding principles aligned towards being fundamentally good and aligned towards doing good and not destroying stuff. And if we create that culture and grow it over time, my intuition is that it will become much less likely that we would potentially go down these paths in future. Well, keeping my fingers crossed for you, I don't want to die in a glorious laser beam death. Yeah, yeah, hopefully hopefully that doesn't happen. All right. Okay, you mentioned some really big visions at the start about potentially enabling us to become an intergalactic species, and those are very lofty goals. Now, I'm curious if that's actually the end goal, if everything goes right for you. What do you think the world looks like? What do you think humanity looks like? Our mission is to power the future. So we want to power a limitless future for humanity by building and scaling an infinitely scalable laser energy distribution system. So that, that can be applied to Earth-based energy distribution. It can be applied to a solar system-wide energy distribution system or even beyond. There's just like a question of how bright can we make the future for humanity and how do we get towards that point? We did realize, like, like the core insight was realizing that the same technology that could power an interstellar future for humanity could also power a sustainable future here on Earth. So we don't have to just do one or the other. We can have both, right? We can have 
an amazing energy abundant future here on earth. Everything's clean, everything abundant and the world's dynamic because everyone just has access to all the energy they need right here on earth. And we can also have a civilization spread amongst the stars. We can have both. And that's what we're, that's what we're building towards at Aquila. Awesome. I don't know if you would know this, if this is a bit before your time, but one of my favorite, favorite computer games when I was growing up was called Mass Effect. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to play that. I have actually. Yeah. You know the story behind it? It's a cause that's close to my heart simply because of the effect that that game had on me when I was growing up. I hope I live to see the vision that you've enabled. And my last question for today is, with those lofty goals, you've already said you don't want this tech to be used for destructive purposes. You want it to be used for humanity's good. What are you going to commit to doing personally to ensure that we get there? The effect that you can have as a person as the institution grows to be something much greater than yourself is often overstated. The only thing I can really do is plant the seeds and nurture their growth. Realistically, what I'm doing here is setting out a vision for the future. I'm setting out some constitutional guidelines. I'm setting out a culture of a company that I want to create that benefits the world. Personally, I will commit to doing my best towards creating that company. The actual effect I can have long-term is just basically planting those seeds. But what I will state is that from my point of view, wanting to maximize the amount of good I do in the world, provided that I do generate a lot of wealth through Aquila, I commit to actually creating pathways to distribute that wealth worldwide to the places that need it. We could increase energy accessibility, we could reduce suffering by essentially channeling some portion of the profits generated through this energy distribution system into actually improving life for everyone. And that's what I want to see. That's the future I want to see. Very noble goals, Billy. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I am very curious to see what the trajectory of Aquila is like. So I would love to check in with you guys again, possibly with Nelson on the show as well. Let's say maybe after your next raise or the one after and see how you guys are going then. How's that sound? Yeah, absolutely. That sounds amazing. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today as well. Awesome. Thank you once again. If you'd like to get in touch with Billy and Aquila, all contact information will be in today's show notes. And that's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm or DM me on Twitter at sean underscore AHD. Otherwise, stay tuned, subscribe, and learn what it's like before the success when what we've got is promise.